Healthcare is rapidly changing. Innovative technologies and new treatment paradigms are changing the way we tackle the world's pervasive health issues. I'm Alex Godin with Oxner Health in New Orleans, Louisiana. Join me as we go inside Louisiana's largest healthcare system, where we discuss new ideas in confronting these healthcare challenges. We talk to thought leaders and healthcare experts to explore the latest innovations in patient care. Welcome to Innovation Health. The stresses of life can affect us in many ways, and a lack of good sleep is often a consequence of a hectic lifestyle. But there can be many different causes of poor sleep, from medical conditions to diet and even lifestyle choices. In this episode of Innovation Health, I speak with Dr. Amy Mioli, the Department Chair of Sleep Medicine here at Oxner Health. We'll discuss the importance of sleep, problems that could be affecting your sleep, and what we can all do to get better sleep. Today I'm joined by Dr. Amy Mioli, our Department Chair of Sleep Medicine here at Oxner. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Um, really excited about our upcoming conversation. I want to kick things off and just have you describe to everyone, what is a sleep disorder clinic and what does your day-to-day practice look like being involved in that? So we see patients with um, any type of issue that interferes with their sleep or if they have complaints of behaviors during sleep or complaints of daytime sleepiness. So we see patients just like any other clinic, mm-hmm. subspecialty clinic. Um, and then if a sleep study is needed, we would schedule it from there. And then we provide follow-up for the patients and treatment and see them through. And just at our most basic level, if we could tell everyone, why do we need sleep? Why is that so important to the body? I mean, it's it's your body's time to restore itself, including the brain. The brain needs to consolidate all of the information that it's taken in and help consolidate memories. Um, I mean, you can't find a species on the, the planet that doesn't need sleep. Such a good point. Before we get into kind of the cool sleep disorder element of things, I want to talk about what does good sleep look like? What are kind of the basic characteristics that you know, okay, I'm getting in that good sleep, I have good sleep hygiene. What is kind of like that ideal state? Well, I mean, sleep needs to be a priority just like any other healthy habit you mm-hmm. have. So you you eat right, you exercise right. Sleep needs to become a priority for people. Um, so looking at their sleep environment and making sure that it's very inviting and there's not things to stimulate them like TVs and other electronics and other things that they could do that would interfere with their sleep. Um, Not constantly thinking, oh, I need to work an extra hour, so let's go to bed later or get up earlier and Mm -hmm. rob myself of a couple hours of sleep. I'm definitely guilty of that. (laughs) I think most of us have been at some point, but um, people need to realize that if they're getting the right amount of sleep consistently, they should feel rested and they will be much more efficient the next day and the day after and the day after. So they'll get much more done in the daytime Mm -hmm. and then not feel like they need that extra hour. So what is that right amount? Does that vary from person to person? There is some variation, not to the extent that people think. Um, The average sleep requirement, depending upon the study that you look at, would be anywhere from about seven hours and 40 minutes to eight hours and 20 minutes in the adult. And that's changing from, like, I know you mentioned just that's the adult, but changing obviously throughout our ages. So, you know, younger children might need more. Teenagers, I'm sure, need the most amount of sleep. Yes. And then we kind of level off at Teenagers that. are about nine to 10 hours <laughs> requirement. Not many get that. <laughs> no, and they're waking up early for school too. Yeah. So what are some of the common causes for bad sleep? I know you mentioned just people wanting to wake up early. Would that look like, you know, I'm staying on my phone too late. I... Um, have too much light coming into my room? Well, certainly um, 
light exposure is very important for sleep and regulating our sleep cycles, um, but light should be throughout the day. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that limit their light exposure throughout the day, and that interferes with their sleep at night. Wow, I did not know that. Well, so especially the like here the in the summer, and okay. they keep their blinds down because they want to kind of control the the temperature within the the uh, their environment, but. Um, certainly you want to start reducing light exposure, especially with an hour or two of sleep. Exercise is very good for sleep as long as it's early in the day. Certainly don't want to do it late in the evening because oh, okay. that interferes with sleep. Um, avoiding excessive caffeine, um, watching alcohol intake. Alcohol is one of the worst things for sleep. Which is surprising because, you know, I always think, you know, if you drink a glass of wine before bed or you get a little sleepy. Um, it depends on the individual and their metabolism. It depends on the frequency of alcohol consumption and the amount of alcohol consumption. The problem is, is alcohol is metabolized. It causes your sympathetic nervous system to increase. So it'll cause you to wake up later. Oh, throughout the night. So not yeah. even that necessarily falling asleep. but So they'll quality. fall asleep, but then wake up later on and then have difficulty getting back to sleep. So I want to go through a few of the things you mentioned. The first being the light. So when we look at that light exposure, and we're all on our phones and screens, um, you, you hear a lot now these days about blue light glasses. Is that something that you feel like could help someone who's who's on their uh, devices all day or help them if they're like working at night or something to have those blue light glasses to kind of like it, help it, block that? It could help, but really you want to get away from screens, electronics within about an hour of going to bed. So starting to read with a dim light behind you, doing something that's just kind of mindless and relaxing. That should be part of your routine. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned exercise. So what is the, the reason behind that, that exercise would make you um, have trouble going to sleep? Is it just your body's kind of on edge or has more energy following the exercise? It drives up um, your internal body temperature. And oh, one of the things that it it assists us falling asleep is a drop off in our body temperature. So when you exercise late, that internal temperature um, is increased. So it's going to potentially have um, cause you to have problems getting to sleep. That's why they always kind of say, um, take a nice warm bath mm -hmm. close to bedtime because that kind of drives up the external temperature and then it drops off faster. So that's some of the, the reasons why people have always said a nice bath close to bedtime could help. And this is kind of on a tangent from that, but I've always wondered like cold versus warm environment, you know, when you're sleeping at night, should you jack up that, you know, thermostat or should you really try to keep it more cool in your space? It needs to be cool. Um, ideal would be about 68 to 70 degrees. More moving into kind of now the sleep disorder side of things. Just curious, what kind of common sleep disorders are you seeing in the clinic? Obstructive sleep apnea far and away is the most common thing we see. Um, it's probably at least almost three-fourths of our practice. And for those who don't know, what is sleep apnea? So basically, it's a condition where the upper part of the airway will collapse during sleep and interfere with the individual's wow. ability to get oxygen down to their lungs. And so that is characterized by people who snore excessively or they even stop breathing in the sleep? Certainly, if somebody tells you you stop breathing in your sleep, you probably have a problem. Not all <laughs> patients with obstructive sleep apnea are loud snorers. Um, and occasionally we'll get people in that, that claim they don't snore. And, you know, you don't know that until they get into the lab. But there, there are reports of people that don't have reported snoring that, that will still have sleep apnea. Because I'm interested to know, like, what does that look like? How would someone even know to think, you know, do I have sleep apnea? You know, how do, how do they make that connection? Like, I could have this. I should seek help. 
Um, you like, know, what are the signs a, to look for? A bed partner telling them that there's mm-hmm. an issue. But the bigger issue is they wake up and they just never feel rested. Doesn't matter how much sleep they get, they're not rested. Wow. They're tired, fatigued. Um, though there are a fair minority of patients with sleep apnea that don't necessarily have symptoms associated with it. So then it's on the part of the physician to start to recognize, oh, you've got these signs that could suggest you're at risk for sleep apnea. We should go get this checked out and, or at least talk to the, the sleep doctors about it and see if this is an issue for you. And how would then in a clinical setting you diagnose it? Is that something they have to wear while they're sleeping to see if they are having interrupted patterns? Yeah, they would do a sleep study, whether it's um, there's the option for an in-lab sleep study, um, and that's used for not only sleep apnea, but definitely used for more complicated sleep disorders. Um, there's also an option for home testing in some patients. Um, now, those patients that are sicker and have a lot of other health issues really aren't good candidates for home testing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to monitor and see what's going on. So would you say this is a disorder that has positive outcomes, like it's easy to, once diagnosed, easy to treat and manage? And, and what does that look like, treating and managing that disorder? I mean, there's a variety of treatments that are available um, and kind of walking patients through that. But treatments for sleep apnea that are effective have clearly been shown to improve lifespan, improve mortality. um, And it helps improve other chronic health issues such as high blood pressure and diabetes. Um, Most importantly, it significantly reduces the risk for stroke and heart attack. That's very interesting because, you know, I wasn't even thinking here that untreated that it would have those long-term detrimental effects. So if if you have sleep apnea, you're not getting it treated, you're at risk for more worse outcomes. Is that just because the body's not getting that restorative quality sleep or does it have to do with the oxygen flow? The best way to think about sleep apnea is it's like a chronic inflammatory disorder. Okay. So it creates um, like a chronic infection, if you will, in your body and it affects every aspect of your body. And these inflammatory mediators that are released um, with sleep apnea, those are the types of things that have been shown to contribute to hardening of the arteries. And it affects blood pressure and oxygenation and the fluctuations in oxygenation. All those things are very hard on our vascular system and all of our our organ systems. So it really is a a chronic inflammatory but system-wide disease. And is there uh, a, this more commonly seen in a certain type of patient or certain groups of people, like ages or male versus female? You can see it in any age. Really? Yeah. Um, women are less commonly uh, diagnosed with sleep apnea until about menopause. Okay. In menopause, they tend to catch up to men. I'm shocked to think that it could be any age. Someone could be suffering from that disorder, especially when it could be so detrimental. Yeah. So that kind of plays into the side of, not getting enough sleep. I'm curious about um, excessive sleep. So say you have, you know, your grandfather goes from sleeping like eight hours a night and suddenly he's sleeping 12, 14 hours and just really sleeping long periods of time. Is that something you'd be concerned about, someone sleeping too much? Um, You'd be concerned about it. Um, Certainly an underlying disorder such as sleep apnea, which affects about 25 Five to thirty percent of men beyond the age of sixty would be one of the most common things you would you would look at. But also, as we get older, we have other health issues. We're on medications, and all those things can affect the amount of sleep uh, that people are getting. So, what about just basic insomnia? Kind of also thinking through some of these disorders. Um, would you say that has become more common in the past few years, and that's something that's coming into your clinic quite frequently? 
Yes and no. Um, the National Sleep Foundation usually does uh, an annual poll of adults, and um, the incidence of insomnia is pretty consistent from year to year, usually about um, 30 to 50 percent of patients will report an insomnia complaint at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, about a third of those, it's a chronic and ongoing significant problem. I'd like to talk more about the chronic insomnia because I just feel like someone dealing with something like that, that can really be hard both physically and mentally. Just when you're, you're operating on so little sleep, just even your mental health would start to suffer as well as your physical health. Um, how do you help those patients? What do you do for them? It would depend on what's causing it. I mean, insomnia is a symptom. It's not a diagnosis. Oh, okay. So you have to figure out what's causing it. Um, so if it's what we call a primary insomnia, mm-hmm. which is insomnia that's not related to an other health problem, an undiagnosed sleep disorder, et cetera, um, generally cognitive behavioral therapies to help them recoup and get their sleep back into mm-hmm. under control. Um, the more common is a comorbid insomnia. So for okay. instance, insomnia is secondary to chronic obstructive lung disease or some other health issue or medication or depression. Mm-hmm. Um, the, those patients can be managed with kind of a mix between right. helping them on their sleep patterns uh, combined with medication. But generally, we try to not keep patients on medications for extended periods. Because there are those other options for the long-term solution, kind of those therapies, those sleep retraining, if you will. Right. But in some patients with significant health issues, um, they may not really have an option um, other than medication to help them. I also have to ask about some of these more I don't want to say novelty. Um, you, you had to know I was going to ask about this. You know, people who sleepwalk, sleep talk, sleep eat. Is this some like how common is this? Because you know, I, for me, I've seen more pop culture. You know, read about people doing this. Is this something you guys are actually seeing? Um, sleepwalking is pretty unusual in adults. Um, usually, the sleepwalking you see in in children, and usually really? it goes away around puberty. Usually, there's a family history of it. Um, sleep talking can be pretty common. Um, Sometimes it is actually a symptom of sleep apnea or something else that's disrupting the sleep. Um, sleepwalking would be unusual to develop in adulthood. Okay. Um, there are medications, many medications that can cause that type of issue. Why is that more common in pediatric patients? Their neurologic system really doesn't fully develop uh, until they hit almost their teens. Okay. And there is a... Um, inability in some people at that age to not fully arouse out of deeper stages of sleep. So they'll get these partial arousals where they can have activity, but they're not fully awake. Um, So then as the neurologic system continues to develop, they get out of that. Is that something similar to how sleep paralysis would work? It's more of a a neurological thing kind of interrupting your sleep patterns. Uh, they're completely separate. They occur at a very separate phases of sleep. Okay. So they're they're really unrelated. So what would define sleep paralysis? That's when a, a patient just may wake up and unable to move. I know just anecdotally, a few people here on our team have dealt with that. Um, is that something y'all are seeing a lot? I, occasionally you'll have patients mention it. It's really um, not anything that's it's of a concern. 
Um, usually it happens in people with erratic sleep patterns or irregular sleep patterns or not getting enough sleep and then they try to finally catch up. Basically, somebody is waking up out of sleep, out of REM sleep specifically. Okay. And during normal REM sleep, our bodies are paralyzed except for the muscles that really matter, such as the diaphragm for breathing. <laughs> so, you know, patients will wake up and they're paralyzed and it'll pass quickly. Um, you know, they're able to breathe. Everything is functioning fine. It's just their brain came to consciousness before the, the paralysis of REM sleep has, has worn off. And I personally have never experienced that, but is that usually just like a momentary, like a few seconds, or could they be experiencing that for up to like 30, 45 seconds, that sleep paralysis? Usually it's less than 30 seconds. It's usually brief. It depends on how worked up somebody gets about it. Uh, the more that you struggle Mm -hmm. and kind of get panicked by it. I can imagine the longer than it will typically last. <laughs> okay, interesting. So I want to talk about for a second when we're sleeping, the dreams we're having. Um, and that, I know that's just a whole Pandora's box on its own thinking about <laughs> dreams. But um, I've, people sometimes who have these really crazy dreams or very vivid dreams, could that be interfering with their sleep? Or does that mean they're not sleeping well if you're having just extreme, vivid, crazy dreams all night? You know, everybody dreams every night. Um, some people remember them, some people don't. Some people report more of a vivid dream uh, activity than, than other individuals. If there's a change in your perception of dreams, that would signal maybe there's a problem. So okay. like, let's say you never remembered your dreams and now all of a sudden you remember all of them. Or you always remembered dreams and now you don't remember having any. That would be a sign of a pathology potentially oh wow so but if you're consistently dreaming you remember your dreams and nothing has really changed i mean that's just you right so what just clinically speaking if you're, you're having that change what could that indicate uh usually it indicates there's something interfering with REM sleep and typically obstructive sleep apnea would be the most common cause interesting so I want to talk about these sleep studies. Um, is this something you would say y'all are doing almost daily and, or even for every patient you see? And what does that look like? What is a sleep study? Um, for an in-lab sleep study, a patient will come in, um, do all their normal activities. They come in and spend the night. Nobody's in the room watching them. Uh, we try to keep everything. <laughs> common misconception. <laughs> common misconception. Um, therapists are monitoring them in a control room, uh, looking at brain waves and all the other things that we're monitoring. Um, so we try to make it as, as homey as possible. Um, we do sleep studies, in-lab sleep studies, almost every night of the week. I have to wonder, do you think that could ever make it hard for someone to fall asleep and kind of interfere with the study, you know? They're in a foreign place and they're like, oh, I'm being watched even though they're not. And that could keep them awake and maybe interfere with the study itself? Not usually, not usually. And in fact, some patients find that they fall asleep easier in the lab than they do at home because we keep things a little bit more controlled, like making sure the TV's turned off before they go mm -hmm. to bed versus the, at home when the TV's on all night while they're in bed. Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we try to control things a little bit more, you know, temperatures more controlled. So sometimes patients actually sleep much better in the lab like, than they do at home. I'll come back. You want to do another study? <laughs> We've had patients ask. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, no. <laughs> I know. Um, I want to talk about sleep aids for a second. So maybe even not for someone who's sought out treatment yet, but just some of these more basic sleep aids people seek out, melatonin, um, maybe even pharmaceutical. What do you guys think about that? Specifically, we'll start with melatonin. The evidence on melatonin is pretty mixed. Most um, controlled studies really don't show that it's efficacious as a sleep aid. 
Um, what it is efficacious for is helping shift our circadian rhythms. Okay. Um, and some people get into a problem because maybe they're taking it at the wrong time and it actually makes their underlying circadian rhythm problem worse and it can actually worsen their sleep. So it's not something typically I would recommend. So what exactly is melatonin? I'm actually unfamiliar with it. I've never taken it. Is that an organic, like a natural supplement? It's a hormone that it, your your brain produces. Okay. And it produces it during uh, sleep, during darkness. So most people are taking this, you would say, like most people are taking it at night and trying to use it to help go to sleep. Mm-hmm. I know actually, um, if you think back even to a year ago during COVID-19, kind of those early stages, a lot of people started touting the effects of melatonin with COVID-19. So I think- A lot of people started melatonin yeah, for that. <laughs> it really surged in popularity then. Yes. And I don't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some of the common pharmaceutical um, interventions that you guys would use for a patient? I know there's a lot of things out there. We see all the commercials for, for sleep aids from the pharmaceutical companies. Let's talk through some of those. Um, probably the most commonly used uh, class of drug is we call the Z-hypnotics. Okay. Um, so that includes um, four major medications in that that group. Um, there are some newer ones on the market that act a little bit differently. Um, generally, the Z-hypnotics are, are the most recommended. I had class no idea to start they were with. called hypnotics. That's very hypnotics, intriguing yes. to me. So is that kind of like that's the Ambien side, the things like that. So Ambien, Sonata, and Lanesta are the main drugs in that. And then there's variations on the preparations. So Ambien, for instance, has a very, very short, immediate action. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a long-term action um, associated with that. Lanesta and Sonata are pretty much their own. Do any patients find that they kind of feel groggy the next day after taking these, almost kind of like that that hangover effect of they still feel a little groggy when they wake up? So there's two things that factor into that. Obviously, if you're looking at a drug with a longer half-life, mm-hmm. um, that potentially could cause a hangover depending upon the duration of sleep. But the other thing to look at is if somebody hasn't been sleeping well or maybe they don't get a, the right amount of sleep during the work week and then they come to the weekend and decide they want to catch up, when that's you catch up on your sleep, then you're going to feel kind of groggy and hungover. That's why a lot of people will come in and say, you know, I function best on six hours of sleep. If I get more than that, then I feel really tired the next day. Well, that's because your body's crammed in deep sleep and REM sleep that you've been robbing yourself mm-hmm. for, um, uh, for throughout your week, weekend, week out. And then you try to catch up on the weekends and you're not going to feel good because your body has gotten all of that deep sleep in and it's just kind of this hangover feeling the next day. So what does that look like, that catch-up process? So, you know, you've identified, I really need to make a shift. I need to start getting this eight hours a night. Um, And there's kind of that window where it's going to feel bad. How long does that take to finally start feeling normal again? Usually it's very quick. Um, I always tell patients, you know, let's say you're going to bed at 11 and then you're having to get up at 5 in the morning. And you've adjusted everything else in your life around that. And you're used to doing that. So... Baby steps, you know, mm-hmm. 15 minutes, go to bed 15 minutes earlier, or maybe find 15 minutes in the morning that you can sleep a little longer. Do that for several days. Find another 10 to 15 minutes. Just keep going at it. Um, it's hard to make big shifts in our lives and our schedule, especially when you have work and mm-hmm. family and other responsibilities. So, you know, baby steps will get you there. And it's kind of nice, too, like thinking about 
you know, my mind jumps to new moms or new parents who are really not getting that full hours. They're waking up constantly in the night. And of course, there's really only so much that can be done. That's kind of there's inevitable. <laughs> that, that's right. just what it is. But that is what there it is. is that light at far at the end of the tunnel that there will be time where they will be able to catch up on that sleep. And that adjustment period might be a little weird, um, but eventually they'll get there. See, so when we have a sleep debt, which is what mm-hmm. you, we describe it as when somebody's not getting the right amount of sleep, our bodies don't make up sleep debt hour by hour. So oh. let's say you've only been getting six hours of sleep through the week. That doesn't mean you have to make up you know, two hours for every day of that week on your weekend. Mm-hmm. Our bodies will cram in deep sleep and REM sleep and catch up. It kind of microwaves our sleep, if you will. So you're able to catch up faster. The problem is that when you get into that repetitive pattern, you're catching up on the weekend. Well, yep. by Tuesday, you're already back to all the yep. negative consequences of sleep debt. So you can't really do it that way. And two, what's surprising to me, I'm learning so much, honestly, what's surprising is the notion of, consistency, consistently, consistency in your sleep. So for me, you know, some nights I'll sleep six, four, eight, just, and it's not even like week, weekend, it's just depends on the night. And I'm realizing now like that can really be detrimental to the sleep because your body just doesn't know what to expect. Right. That's so surprising. Um, Kind of looking, turning towards the innovation side of it now, I'm curious to know, are there any new cool things going on in the world of, of sleep disorders? Are, are there any studies that are getting some traction that are interesting to you guys as providers? I mean, I just, more and more evidence comes out to the potential bad effects that can occur with undiagnosed sleep problems. Mm-hmm. How better to diagnose this? You know, home testing wasn't available 10, well, 20 years ago. Um, you know, as you get older, you suddenly think something is five years ago and it was 10 oh, yeah, or 15. the 90s were just 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there, there's, you know, we're always striving to find better ways to deliver care to patients in, more, in, eff, in a more efficacious fashion and, you know, improve testing and make it more palatable for people. And you mentioned home testing. I meant to ask about this earlier when we were mm-hmm. talking about that diagnosis. What does that look like for a patient? Are they just kind of sent home with... with- a list of instructions what are, what are they supposed to do so they meet with a tech and they'll they take home a small monitor there's various there's all kinds of home testing units the monitors mm-hmm. will vary but usually there's only a few things the patient will have to connect to when they get home so the tech will show them how to do that usually they give them written instructions um, we always give a reference to youtube youtube usually has something on there that would show them how to particularly hook up that particular unit and then um, there's always a, a number they can call in and, and speak to a tech if there's an issue during the night and thinking of kind of this more autonomous side of things um, I feel like just every day there's new apps like we'll help you sleep better you know <laughs> sleep apps or here's bedtime feature on the phone and they even have I guess like I guess people keep the phone on their on their bed with them or, or something and it like is tracking their movement and their sleep even what do y'all think about that I, I, my personal opinion, I mean, there's not like studies that say, okay, this is really potentially diagnostic, or this is really, you know, how accurate is this information. Mm -hmm. But I think that if it gets a patient to focus on their sleep, and focus on a routine of their sleep, then I think it's a positive. So, you know, if your phone's tell, you know, 10 o'clock, you need to really go to bed, or, you know, give you a warning at nine o'clock, start shutting stuff down, you need to go to bed in an hour. So I, I think those are positive things. And now more kind of on just the anecdotal side of things, I'm curious to know, have there been any 
memorable or interesting cases that you've really enjoyed treating or found really exciting or interesting? Too many to mention. <laughs> <laughs> Way too many to mention. Um, I have I most some of the memorable ones I can't even talk about. Um, I remember one uh, individual, and um, she was an elderly lady, and got her circadian rhythms all out of whack, and she would literally, she had her sleep broken into two patterns, but she would basically start drinking beer about five or six in the morning because that was her happy hour because then she went to bed at nine in the morning and then she slept for a period and then she was up for a while and then she would go back to sleep for a little bit, but then she'd be up all night again. And um, I just... It, just a refreshing 5 a.m. beer. <laughs> it was her, her happy hour <laughs> and I was going through everything with her and she goes, you're going to take my happy hour away? And I'm like... You're only drinking one beer. You can have it. So just go with that. This is what we need to do with your sleep. We put her on light therapy, and we fixed her pretty quickly. But so what is light therapy? Uh, so the the strongest thing that in um, makes our circadian rhythm uh, function the way it does is mm-hmm. light. Um, so light's very important. Um, light is one of the things that causes kind of the shift on how we sleep in the summer versus the winter. Okay. Typically, we tend to sleep a little longer during the winter because there's not as much light out there. Ooh. So um, light exposure is very important. So in some patients with a significant circadian disturbance, we'll put them on light therapy to help them shift. And is that they have a specific type of light in their in their bedroom or it's a specific light box um that has to be specially made otherwise you could potentially get corneal damage oh wow so it has to be shielded and 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 you can pick them up walmart amazon i mean they're they're everywhere they're the same type of light box that you would use for seasonal affective disorder Thank you so much, Dr. Mioli. That was so interesting. And to be totally honest, I'm very motivated now to get my sleep (laughs) under control. Um, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure everyone listening did too. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me today. So I hope this discussion with Dr. Mioli gives you more insight into things we can all be doing to get better sleep. It's been really interesting to hear about Oxner Sleep Center and the ways it helps patients with sleep issues. If you're having problems with sleep, visit oxner.org and search sleep disorders to find more information. Thanks again for joining me on this episode. I'm Alex Godin, and I'll see you next time on Innovation Health.